You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Will Schwalbe has worked in publishing and digital media as the founder and CEO of Cookster.com and as a journalist writing for various publications, including the New York Times and South China Morning Post. He is the author of The End of Your Life Book Club and co-author with David Shipley of Send, Why People Email So Badly and How to Do It Better. His new book is Books for Living. Thank you for joining me, Will. Thank you, Rick. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, this is such an engaging and interesting book. When we pick it up and look at it, it looks like one of those really fun books to read. It's a collection of looks at different books that most of which or many of which we may not have seen, the ones we're familiar about. We want to read about your viewpoint, and we think, oh, this looks really fun. But then as we read them one by one, something else happens. This becomes an autobiography. It becomes a meditation on the import of taking a break, of goofing off, of stepping back from your life in order to better uh, return to it in action. Yes, well, I'm so I'm so glad that that's uh, what you saw in it because that's exactly what I wanted. I feel that when we sit down and we take some time, whether it's time with a book or just time to reflect or time to go for a walk or lie around in bed or goof off with friends, something very important is happening, which is we're allowing our mind to reorder itself. And then we can return to the business of life with renewed energy concentration. And I quote a lot of authors um, who wrote books that have been really meaningful to me who are talking to precisely this point. And it doesn't matter whether it's a book like The Little Prince or a book like Anne Morrow Lindbergh's Gift from the Sea. Um, These are books that really tell us that we have to stop every now and then. And reading, to me, is the best way I know to to stop for a while. For me, uh, one of the things this book will make anybody who reads it think about it is uh, the way you spend the time of your life. Uh, We become more and more aware, especially as we age, that our life is measured not in years or, or decades, but in hours and seconds and minutes. And the way we make those minutes mean something is by doing something. And when you choose to read, that's a deliberate choice to engage with directly with the mind of another, but also engage directly with your mind. It's a form of meditation, I think. Yeah, it really is a form of meditation. And, and that point you bring up, how we choose to spend our minutes— is, is a really key point. And I've had so many people tell me, oh, I, I don't have time to read anymore. They say, I wish I had time to read, but I don't have time to read. But then I just ask them to add up how many minutes they spend on the little machines that we carry in our pockets and in our hands. <laughs> if you have time to check Facebook every five minutes, you have time to read. And, and there's a, a wonderful phrase a friend taught me. He said, you write the books you need. And I'm addicted to social media as much as anybody I know. Um, But when I remember to be more thoughtful about life, to take time to goof off and to read, boy, it's just like a a jolt in my life. It's a dramatic improvement. Well, I think, too, that uh, the joy of this book is there are so many, like, scenes in it that remind us 
of our own books and there's own uh, parts of our own lives. And I think that that's one of the things you think you manage so well. When you were writing this book, talk about you're creating your own memories, revisiting your own memories of reading, but also knowing that you're going to spur memories of reading this book yeah. <laughs> by your readers, and they're going to be thinking about the books that they've read that were important to them. That's how you, I hadn't realized it in that sort of meta way, Rick, but you're right. I, I very much hope that this book in, in some way will become a book that people will will look back on and, and think, oh, it inspired me to do this or think about that. Uh, what I really wanted to do in Books for Living is by showing 26 books that had been really important to me, that had helped me at a time in my life when I really needed help or helped me recognize or understand my life in a different way, what I hoped is that this would encourage people to create their own Books for Living and to think, what are the 10, 20, 30 books of your life that found you when you, when you needed them most? Uh, because I feel like you are what you read. And as, as we move along in our lives, um, those books that touched us um, in many ways play the same role as the people who touched us. And, and often, too, they're very bound together. Um, I loved writing about people who gave me books or helped me find a certain book or, or friends who I've lost uh, who I remember through certain books. Um, and that kind of fascinating interweaving of, of people and books. And, and as I say, they're bound together. In, in memories, and I think that this is one of the things that's so important about books, and one of the points I think you make really well is that when we read something in a book, it gets lodged in our memory in a certain way. And I think the best books that we read, when we revisit those memories of reading the book, they're not so different from our memories of being somewhere or being with a friend. And I think that we can visit the best books create worlds or draw you in so perfectly, you can go back and revisit them. And it's almost like uh, remembering when you were in France. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I use lots of examples like that of books that, that bring back times or people. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that was most moving for me to write um, is a chapter I have about David Copperfield. Mm, boy, um, what I, gosh. <laughs> is that what, that's <laughs> one of my absolute favorites. Oh, yeah. And, and I have, I can tell, I, I absolutely remember reading that in college. I was sitting in the reading a seedy little paperback edition, but I would go out like in the middle of like a high school gym field late in the afternoon after all the high school kids had gone. And I'd just sit out there and read this book in the sunlight. I oh, just... yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I envy anyone who hasn't read David Copperfield for the first time. So I fell in love with this book and these characters. But I have a chapter about the kind of mystical role that Davids have played in my life and how oh, important yeah. Davids have been to me. And I write about my best friend uh, in college uh, who was killed in a, in a terrible accident a couple years after we graduated. And he loved David Copperfield, too. And for me now, when I think about my friend David and I think about David Copperfield, they're both connected in some very mystical way. But also, David Copperfield helped me deal with the death of my friend David because I'll never forget the experience of finishing David Copperfield and turning the last page and just being overwhelmed with sadness because I thought that was the last time I would ever be able to spend time with the characters, with Steerforth, with David Copperfield, with Dora, with little Emily. And then I realized over time that was just the beginning of my relationship with them and that David Copperfield and those characters would be with me my entire life. And when my friend David um, 
my college friend was killed, my reaction at first was overwhelming grief, as though that was the last I would ever be able to think of or spend time with my dear friend. And in, in some way, David Copperfield helped me realize that I could continue my relationship with my friend long after his death. And, and as I see it, when I think of David Copperfield, I get to choose whether I remember my grief at finishing it or my joy in reading it. And when I think of my friend David, I get to choose whether I remember his death or whether I remember his life. Wow. That's really a, a powerful statement. And I think it's matched by many of the autobiographical moments in this book. This book is a stealth autobiography. It is. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a memoir in hiding. Yeah. My life in the bush of books. Yeah. It's... I can't write about my life without writing about books, and I can't really write about books without writing about my life. <laughs> and, and I really believe that's the way most people are, mm -hmm. that I love literary criticism, and I'm fascinated by it, but I'm not a literary critic. And I think most people who read, they aren't literary critics. They're constantly refracting books through the lens of their own lives and experiences. And I love book clubs, and that's what we do in book clubs. Mm -hmm. We bring our life to one another, and books are the medium. And so I write about a wonderful high school, uh, high school librarian. Uh, oh, boy. I remember my high school librarian, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and these people are, are lifesavers. And I mm -hmm. talk about how she, I really believe it might be too dramatic to say she saved my life, but she saved the life I have. By I was a young gay kid at a time when I'd never known an out gay student or faculty member at my Episcopal boarding school. There had never been one. And she started leaving books for me on the library cart. And one of them was Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. And, and as I write, she helped me imagine a life that I could look forward to without dread. And books can do that for you if you find the right book at the right time. Those, that passage, writing about the James Baldwin book in your librarian, that was so beautiful and powerful to read that. And one of the things that made me think of was that as I read that and I was able to connect both with the characters in the Baldwin book from my memory of reading it and from your memory of reading it and connect with your characters is that one of the powers of books is to create characters and people who are as real to us as the people we know and talk to in many ways. I remember as a little kid, I was at my grandmother's house and she was there with my aunt my aunt actually had cerebral palsy, which mm. plays a part in this book. But um, she was talk. They were talking about the people on the on a soap opera, and I realized that they were talking about them like they were. They were talking about these people talking about going back and forth in the names and stuff. I thought, wait, those are the people on the soap opera. They're talking about them like they're real people. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's what the best books do. They do, and actually. The best books do something that goes a little further even, and, and I think it's one of the most important things about reading, is reading is radical listening. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Continue in this vein. So when you're reading a book, uh, you can yell at the book, you can cross <laughs> out things, you can scribble things in the margin, you can throw it across the room, you can throw it out the window, but you cannot change the words on the page. And so reading forces you to at least for a moment, tuck away your own prejudices and really listen to someone else. Uh, as I write, you can interrupt yourself when you're reading, but you can't interrupt the writer. 
Um, those words will always be on the page in the same way. Uh, and I think especially in these times, man, is that important to, to learn how to listen again. It's an exercise, in a sense, in compassion, where the actual practice of reading, of processing somebody else's language with your mind, uh, puts you in a compassionate mode where you're forced to say, wow, now I understand why these people act that way. Yeah. It, it, compassion and empathy. Mm -hmm. It really forces you to see the world through someone else's eyes. But this works, the empathy thing, only if you read broadly, only if you seek out books from people very different from yourself. Uh, one of the other things that gave me real joy in, in writing this is I think there's wisdom to be found in all different kinds of books. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I loved writing about a book like The Girl on the Train, uh -huh. uh, which is a contemporary suspense novel. Um, and as some books help you develop your sense of empathy, I think when you read thrillers and suspense, they help you develop that really important skill about knowing whom to trust. <laughs> and so that's why I love, I love to test my instincts against other people's. Well, I think, too, of trust, you bring that back, too, and, of course, uh, in 1984, which is uh, starting to seem – it's, uh, it's a bestseller, again, as I, I understand. I believe this morning it's number one on most bestseller lists, <laughs> George Orwell's 1984. So there's a book that was drawn that was very largely based on his autobiographical experience. Room 101 was where George Orwell worked. It's amazing. He, it's he amazing. Had, he had actually, I think, if uh, there's an uh, uh, urban legend that he intended to call it 1948, and they said, <laughs> you can't call this book that. We don't want to know the truth. It's so funny. I remember the first time I read it, I was a little kid, and 1984 seemed so far in the future that I thought it would never come, and, and then it came and went. I mean, of course, he was prescient in all these crazy, terrifying ways, including truth and, and all that kind of thing, but... In my book, I actually focus on one of the places he just didn't go far enough. And one of the things I loved about the imagery that he conjures are these telescreens. And as you'll recall, in the world of 1984, there are telescreens everywhere. And, and people are watching everything you do and say. And yet in our world, <laughs> we carry the telescreens in our pockets. And we don't need anyone to spy on us because we spy on ourselves from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. We log in everything we do, say, think, and eat. We take pictures of our friends and surroundings. And we enable GPS that knows where we are every second and logs it. And I think, oh, my goodness. I mean, Orwell never would have imagined that. Um, and, and that makes it even more important to, as an act of rebellion, Turn off the little screens. Put them away for a while. And I don't care if you read or just stare out the window or take a walk in the woods, but get away, at least for part of the day, from the little screens. When you pick up the, the paper book, this is, it's important to remember that this is a piece of technology that's uh, more than 500 years old. And that is a piece of technology that we still haven't really bested yet. Oh, it's it's phenomenal technology, the book. It's it's unbelievable. Uh, and it doesn't need a charging cord, and it never runs out of power, uh, which is really, really fabulous. And it's also the act of reading is the only thing or one of the few things I can think of that you do alone that makes you feel less lonely. 
And also, too, and this is uh, in in a discussion about one of the books, which I don't want to give away, but they do. But we, we do talk about reading as an art. And I think that that's really important because to me, especially when you're reading fiction, you become essentially a motion picture director. You're your own Steven Spielberg and you can do special effects way better <laughs> than anybody will ever be able to do. I love that. I love that. Well, I, I, I love the thought and I write about this that Every writer teaches you how to read. Mm-hmm. And the more you read, the the better you become as a reader. And I will give away a little of this chapter because it was one of the ones I had the most fun writing. I, I wrote about the art of reading in terms of Zen and the art of archery, which was the book that sort of created the Zen and the art of <laughs> things. Um, and it's by a German uh, professor who was studying in Japan. Eugen Herigl. Exactly. Exactly. And um, he goes to study archery. And the first thing he has to learn is... The art of letting the bow go. And he learns that you don't let the bow go and the, the arrow spring forth. It happens. That uh, And there's a, this beautiful passage where it's, it's the analogy is made to a little child clutching the finger of a parent. I love that. And when you read that, the act of reading that is so powerful. It tells you far more than almost even if the experience itself might. Yeah, and and that that idea that the child doesn't think I'm going to let go of my parent's finger, the child just lets go, and then when you let go of the string and the arrow flies, it it has to be like that. And so, in reading, the art of reading for me is the art of losing yourself in the book. It's when you're no longer conscious that you're reading, but you're one with the text. Uh, I, and I think that that is so important. That is the moment when you are officially and actually goofing off. Yes. You yes. have stepped off the edge of the earth at that point, and you're in a world of your own creation. Exactly. And, you're, and, and the mind is quiet. And it is a form of meditation. And it, it recharges you uh, and gives you energy, uh, power to, to do everything you need to do in the world. And we need to do a lot in the world. But the more we need to do, the more we need to carve out that time to let our minds be quiet and listen. Now, one of the things you said that I think is really important, in order to learn to listen, we need to really read widely. And one that's one of the reasons I love this book is that you go everywhere. And here, uh, you, you give us... Uh, the Girl on the Train, you give us the Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. Uh, I, and I think that that Song of Solomon, what what an amazing book that is. Oh, it's such a, it's such a, a masterpiece. It really is. And, and I come down to there's one passage in Song of Solomon that on rereading really stuck with me. And it's one of the characters um, who has one book to her to her possession, but it's a geography book. And that book opens up the world. Uh, and that's the power of a book. One book can, can open up the world. And, and I start the book. My epigraph is from George R.R. R. Martin, um, Game of Thrones author. Um, and I'm paraphrasing. But he basically says the person who doesn't read lives only one life. But the person who reads lives thousands. Uh, and, and so that theme of, of the way books open us up and all different kinds of books. I, I loved writing about a children's picture book called More, 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 Said the Baby. <laughs> um, it's a glorious book by Vera B. Williams. And it's about uh-huh. how infants and toddlers soak up as much love as you could ever possibly give them. 
Um, but that phrase, more, 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 said the baby, just stuck in my mind. And I started to think, wow, what's adorable in children is really horrifying in adults. <laughs> and one of the great problems is we're, we're, we're ruled by baby people who can only think more, more, more. And so I, I put that book in a chapter together with Plutarch's lives um, because Plutarch chronicled the heroic and the horrible in Roman and Greek politicians and generals. And I talk about some of the people Plutarch chronicled and that thing, more, 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 said the baby and what trouble it gets us into. Well, I love the way you weave uh, different books in and through. You keep coming back uh, to to the importance of uh, living throughout that's, the book. And yeah. That's kind of your keystone, your North Star, so to speak. That really is my North Star. And that's this extraordinary book from 1938 by a Chinese author named Lin Yutang. And uh, Lin Yutang was a great friend of Pearl Bucks in China and uh, came to the U.S. and he wrote this monster bestseller. Everyone around the world in the 30s was reading The Importance of Living, and then it was forgotten, but for decades. And, and it is my North Star because he's the one who taught me this wonderful thing. He says The Importance of Living is about the noble art of leaving things undone. Um, which is a great phrase. And he, he goes on and on. He has marvelous things about the importance of lying in bed in the morning and the importance of staring out the window, all, all the things that I, I celebrate. Uh, but it's very important to remember that he was writing this in 1938. And he writes very specifically in the book about Hitler and Stalin. And he comes back throughout the book to a very, very serious message, which is reading contemplation, writing poetry, all represent humanistic values. And that actually what we really need to fight for and do everything in our power to fight for in, in politics and in every way possible is the preservation of humanistic values. And we should never trust anybody who doesn't believe in those values. Not, not just fight for them. And I think that's one of the things that this book makes clear. You fight with humanistic values. Exactly. You use the power of reading and the power of the characters that are created by great writers, by the power of the lives that are told to explore other worlds and other people that you might not have otherwise have access to. I think that, too, for me, this idea of wide reading is really important. I think that's something that uh, it helps almost in to... Uh, deliberately, like, plan your reading. And one of the things I've always tried to do is to go from one sort of book to a very different sort of book, back and forth deliberately. And it also really helps, I think, to seek out books you think you wouldn't like by people you think you might not like. I, I'm a big believer in the universe will tell you what book you need to read <laughs> when you need to read it. And uh -huh. so to that end, I have a couple of superstitions. One, if I knock over a book in a bookstore, I have to buy it. Oh, really? Yep, because that's the universe telling me. <laughs> but the other thing, and this, I think, is the most important thing mm -hmm. that we can do. We just have to ask each other the question, what are you reading? All the time. Everybody. When you're standing in line with someone at the deli, when you're taking an Uber somewhere or a taxi cab, when you're standing on the bus, turn to somebody and say, hey, what are you reading? And that's how we discover all different kinds of books. I also, I think books can do so much for us. But one of the most important things... Uh, is books can help us stay mad, and that's a very good thing, too. Oh, yeah. People sometimes say to me, oh, you know, what, what book should I read to comfort me in difficult times? I say, well, 
Here's some great books if you want to be comforted. But sometimes in difficult times, you don't want to be comforted. You want to be riled up, um, fired up and ready to go. And here's some books that will do that for you. Uh, so just because you take time out of your schedule to read doesn't mean necessarily you're taking time to escape. Very often, you're, you're taking time to, to charge the batteries. And that uh, leads us to probably another uh, soon-to-be bestseller, uh, Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here. Oh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's just one of the ones that's rocketing up the charts. Uh, I love that you wrote about uh, even just the title of this, of this chapter, The Odyssey. Embracing mediocrity. Yes, I, <laughs> I think this thanks. is again. This comes back to this theme, uh, this common theme in your book of taking some time out. So tell us how we go from the Odyssey. You know what we think the home, the greatest hero in the world, to <laughs> mediocrity. Well. One of the things I love is you can get very unexpected lessons from books. And just because uh, that may not be what everyone else gets doesn't mean it's not totally valid. Oh, exactly. And Odysseus was really amazing a lot of things. I mean, he was a phenomenal warrior. Um, he was a great builder of Trojan horses, clearly. But the guy wasn't really very good at getting home. Uh, he, he was mediocre at it. <laughs> Everybody else managed it in quite short order. It took him a decade. Um, and yeah, he had the gods against him at some points, but he also goofed off. He went and hung out with Circe and had a lot of lovemaking and gourmet food. So the important thing, though, is he did it. He got home um, and he fixed things when he got there. So what I take away from the Odyssey is you don't have to be great at everything. You just have to get it done eventually. And that it's a society when we live in this constant state of hyperbole, where everything has to be like the most amazing, the best, a mind-blowing meal, the best piece of pizza you'll ever have. It really takes away from the ordinary pleasures <laughs> of life. And it, it leads to this kind of greed and competition. And sometimes I'll be sitting and, and having a really nice slice of pizza. And a friend will say, oh, well, that pizza's good, but the really best pizza's across town. And oddly enough, I think of Odysseus, and I'm like, this this is a very tasty pizza. pizza. It's fine. So that's that's how I came to that message from that book. And you also bring up one of my all-time favorite heroes. Uh, for me, the, the, the quintessence of modern heroism can be captured in Bartleby the Scrivener. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up. <laughs> um, Bartle I loved writing about Bartleby the Scrivener, who is the guy who starts to say, I would prefer not to, <laughs> and basically um, declines everything. Uh, and I feel he's a real hero for our time. Mm -hmm. uh, I was inspired to write about him after a, attending a, a tech conference where a very well-known Silicon Valley uh, investor spoke. And he said, the one thing that is the common quality of all great internet entrepreneurs is they never gave up. And I thought, yeah. And then I thought, no. <laughs> they clearly gave up a lot of things before they did this. And what's the problem with giving up? If, if it's not working, stop doing it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I really think we need to celebrate those among us who simply would prefer not to whatever <laughs> that thing they would prefer not to might be. Now, you also take us to a, a wonderful book. I, I like that this book is – there are books that we've heard of and books that we haven't ever heard of. And Lateral Thinking and Introduction is a book that I had never heard of. 
although the term lateral thinking is dropped on my head pretty much once a day. Uh-huh, yeah. So I, it was great to find the uh, inception point, so to speak. So tell us about this book and your first computer. Oh, I do write about uh, this K-Pro that I had um, in the early mid-'80s, and it was one of the first computers, and it would do this thing called swapping. I don't know what was swapping was, but you had two floppy disks, and you'd be typing, and every now and then it would just say swapping. And for an endless amount of time, it would do this activity um, and would get stuck on going back and forth between these two disks. And, and I use that as a bit of a metaphor for when I get in a muddle, and I have a choice to make among two things, and I just keep swapping this or that, this or that, this or that. And I lie awake at night, this or that, this or that, this or that. And I talk about with the computer, you could sort of reboot it. Mm-hmm. Turn it off, turn it on. Sometimes it would keep swapping and sometimes it would clear. Um, and for me, the rebooting is the equivalent of taking a sleeping pill or something. And sometimes you wake up and you're clear and sometimes this or that. But lateral thinking is this marvelous book by Edward de Bono that teaches you whenever you think you have to choose between two things, look for another option. There's probably a third way of doing something that you haven't thought about. And, and I start, I won't give it away, with a wonderful riddle uh, story that he tells that, that shows brilliant lateral thinking in action. Uh, I think so. I, I, it makes me think that all those things we like to call dilemmas are actually trilemmas. And all we have to do is just... <laughs> just look at <laughs> reframe, it from a different way. Reframe them. Reframe the problem. Uh, a little hugging. <laughs> a little hugging. We need a, some hugging. A little, I, I write and books about, are like a hug, too, yes. I think. But actually, I write about hugging in terms of uh, Hanya Yanagahara's marvelous, extraordinary, powerful, devastating novel, A Little Life. And this, to me, is one of the great books of the last few years, or really of our time, mm-hmm. on the story of four students uh, who graduate from college, move to New York, and it chronicles their lives over the next couple decades. And you come to see that one of the characters has been the victim of really horrific abuse, childhood abuse. Um, And it's a lot about how the other characters um, attempt to be there for him in his life at times when he keeps pushing them away and spirals ever downwards. And it's devastating. It's a brilliant, fantastic book. Um, But that book brought me on a journey to write about touch and about our need to touch one another, but also those of us who aren't huggers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one sort of funny consequence of this book, I write about, I'm not really a hugger. <laughs> I consider myself a warm person. Um, I like to greet people. I love other people. But I'm just one of those people, not a hugger. And our society has a little bit of problems with that. And there's some extraordinary passages in A Little Life that uh, that touch on that. And it's, again, that kind of theme where sometimes just an unexpected thing in a book Will, will really speak to you and help you understand yourself in a very different way than you've ever understood yourself before. I, some of the uh, autobiographical portions of the book are so powerful, and I'm wondering, I, I'm thinking of the part you, where you wrote about your, your friend Lee. I, I, that just really uh, struck me with the uh, this... I had a very intense sense of nostalgia, which you call home pain. Yeah. And I think that that's really powerful. So when you were writing this book, did you relive those things for the first time in some time? Some of them only came back to me. So I wrote about Lee Harkins, who was a a friend and classmate uh, when we were in high school, and she died uh, sophomore year. Um, And 
how I hadn't thought about her for decades. Uh, and then I read The Little Prince, and all of a sudden she came back. And I called her mother and reestablished contact with her mother. Um, and how The Little Prince uh, is the book that brought Lee back into my life. Uh, I also wrote a, ch a chapter that was very difficult to write, but that I really wanted to write and was very important to me, was a chapter about AIDS and about being a young gay man in the early years of AIDS and about working the phone lines at gay men's health crisis at a time when actually it was first still called GRID and no one knew anything about it and the terror we all felt and our, our certainty that we wouldn't see 25 uh, to be a 20-year-old young man and think I've got five years left tops. And I write about how that was so difficult for me to think about over the last couple of years um, that I really pushed it down. And reading a book by Rebecca Brown called The Gifts of the Body mm. uh, really helped me understand that time of life and, and kind of helped me forgive myself, too, for things I didn't need to forgive myself for, but I realized for, for things I blamed myself for in some very deep and unhealthy way. And, and this book, Rebecca Brown is a marvelous writer, and it's a novel in Connected Stories, The Gifts of the Body. And she had been a home health care worker right, during the yes. early years of AIDS. And it's a novel in these connected stories. And that book was a gift to me. And, and again, that's the universe putting books in your way that, that you need when you need it. That was simply a friend telling me, Trust me, you, you have to read this book. Uh, when I read those passages, I just thought it was so powerful because the power of hindsight, uh, we understand so much more about what happened then now and what is happening now, um, what is happening now, that to the way you so perfectly re-immerse us in that, I think, an almost innocent perception of what was going on in the midst of all this terror and uncertainty. It's really beautifully, beautifully written. Oh, thank you. It was very meaningful for me to revisit that. And it allowed me to, to come back to a theme. And it's a theme I come back to throughout the book. And I'm so pleased that you're bringing up the chapters that, that highlight this theme, which is about our responsibility to the people we loved and lost who aren't with us anymore. Um, and I write uh, in the chapter about AIDS, uh, I write about my, my early years on the hotline and a kind of funny, bizarre experience I had, but also thinking about all the writers we lost mm. and all the books that will never be written. And that leads me to think of all the readers we lost. We lost hundreds of thousands of readers and, and all the books that will never be read. Uh, and I tie that into the experience of going to one of the most powerful memorials in the world, which is uh, the, the monument to the book burning in Babelplatz in Berlin. Um, the monument to the Nazi book burning, which is simply a plexiglass square set in the middle of the pavers. And you look down and there's a cavernous, empty white library big enough to hold um, all of the books that were burned in that square that day. Um, and it's a monument to the absence of books. And, and I thought about that um, and I thought about Rebecca Brown's book when thinking, what can we do for the hundreds of thousands of readers we lost to AIDS and, and lost all sorts of things in our life? And, and it kind of came to me, we can read for them. We can read the books that we think they might have loved. We can read books we would have loved to talk about with them. And we can read not, not again, to remove ourselves from life, but to really make us more thoughtful about how we continue their legacies and how we engage with the world right now. Well, that's I, you talked about 
just now you say read we don't read to remove ourselves from life we read to as engage as directly as possible with the other human being on the other side of those words those words are the absolutely the thinnest net between two human beings that there could possibly be you and I talking there's space between yes, us yes. When the page there's nothing it's just those words go right into my brain and there's nothing left there's nothing left and we also can adjust the pace at which we read mm. when we come to a difficult thought or concept we can stop think about it read it again when our when our our heart is pounding and when we're zipping through something uh, we can flip through the pages um and again i really want people to read all different kinds of books one of my favorite chapters to write is about an incredible uh, middle grade reader a book for fifth graders called wonder by rj palazzi oh yeah palacio now you say he was a publisher do you know who he is oh she actually oh, she, it's okay. the, the but rj you wouldn't know that these initials <laughs> yes i do actually um i do know who she is brilliant publisher um and this book about a boy with a facial deformity who has been homeschooled and he's going to school for the first time ever as a fifth grader. Uh, and it has this extraordinary message, which is not just choosing kindness, but to choose to be more kind than is necessary. That's the phrase she uses. And, oh, that just just exploded in my brain as a, as a concept. And actually, if there's one book that I would urge everyone in the country to read, it's it's Wonder. It's this book written for fifth graders, because I think it has a message for everyone. You know, that's something I have long thought that this idea of carpet bombing places with napalm is really counterproductive in that were we to carpet bomb them with copies of books like Wonder, people might pick them up, <laughs> read them, and come away with a much better impression of us. Well, I would love to have one of my dreams is I don't know if you know these things. Sometimes they have school reads where a whole school reads a book. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they have city reads where a whole city reads a book. I want a country read or a world read. Um, but it, we got to we got to read a lot of books because mm -hmm. we can't just get one point of view. But we should all reading is where we can meet each other. When we're readers, exactly. we're equal. We, yes. We're just readers. I'm a reader. You're a reader. And when we're talking about a book, um, we're on the same page. And how <laughs> cool is that? Now. Oh. One kind of book I think that everybody has and we don't often think about, but when we do, it, it's with us really often a very powerful emotional connection are cookbooks. Oh, I'm so, yeah. Because we, we inherit them. I mean, my favorite cookbook in the world, I use many cookbooks, but I, I, to be honest, my real favorite cookbook is The, the Joy of Cooking that I inherited from my mother. And I keep that right close. It's in the kitchen. I use it all the time, even if I've already know the recipe. I open it up to the pages. Yeah. Um, I, I have a chapter on cookbooks because mm -hmm. I think cookbooks have so much to teach us. Oh, yes. Um, and, and the chapter on cookbooks is written about, or rather centered on a particular one, Edna Lewis's uh, The Taste of Country Cooking. Mm. Um, and Edna Lewis is really the person most responsible for American cooking as it exists today. Um, the whole concept of farm to table, of celebrating our regional cuisines, of cooking in concert with the seasons. Um, we really owe to Edna Lewis. She is the foundational figure in American cooking. Um, and this book is poetry, Taste of Country Cooking. Um, she grew up in Freetown, Virginia. Her grandfather had been enslaved um, among with every everybody, obviously, at the time. And he and um, some other formerly enslaved people founded this Freetown. Um, and she writes about growing up in a place 
um, where the echoes of slavery were so very recent, but where people were just joyful about um, their freedom, about community, about doing things to benefit the next generation, planting fruit trees, and about living in harmony with the seasons. And yet it's a, it's a book with echoes, too, because she talks about the distances her grandfather's friends would come to visit them and the stories they would tell um, and her emotion as, as a young girl um, sitting by the fire listening to these, these tales. And I, I think this book, it's got the most extraordinary recipes. I mean, it, it, uh, I, I say it ends with the four most beautiful words in the English language, which is serve with warm gingerbread. <laughs> um, but beyond that, it's a book that really reminds us about our unfinished journey towards uh, equal justice, racial equality. Um, it, it's, and it's a cookbook. Uh, it's a it's a extraordinary thing. Uh, I I love that in this book. Almost with every book you show us, you open it up, you take us in it, and then essentially you turn it upside down. And that every book, you know, a book for example, a book titled "The Importance of Living." One might think that this is something like Hegelian philosophy that you have to take apart with a yep, yep. with an exacto knife and put the words up on the board. What is that sentence doing? Every book is different. Every what book is different. Books have I mean to be and for readers, mm-hmm. um, and everyone can be a reader. The the prime emotion I believe is curiosity. Mm-hmm. And so every time I start a new book, I'm curious. I wonder if it's a novel, what's going to happen, or if it's a thriller, or I wonder how she's going to get herself out of this one, um, but, or I wonder why everyone's saying this book is so wonderful, or I wonder why everyone's saying it's so terrible, um, or I wonder why I got that review. And I'm curious, and, uh, but I'm also hopeful. And, and those, that's the other emotion. I'm hopeful that this book is going to have something that will allow me to see my life differently or live more meaningfully. And I believe if you approach books with curiosity and with a sense of hopefulness, um, you will find things that surprise you and, and you will find something that will help you. And this brings to mind something that this book made me think is that the most important book in your life is not the ones in the library, not the ones you've read. The most important book in your life, I think, should always be the one you're just about to start. And there should be a lineup. <laughs> yes, there should be there should be a line. And books also should lead you one to another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you read a Donna Leone mystery set in Venice, maybe next time you'll want to read a, a history of Venice. Um, and maybe that will lead you to another kind of books and, and to follow a kind of crumb trail from one book to another to another and let the book you're reading sometimes tell you what you should read next is a marvelous way to, to go about life. It's like friends introducing you to friends. Uh, well, uh, books are a human crowd in a sense. Uh, that's a great phrase. Uh, now, uh, when you were putting this together, this must have been a, a terrifying task. <laughs> 26 books. How could you do limit yourself to that? And in fact, you write about... Uh, uh, someone who decides to limit his own library to 100 books, my wife would love that if I would do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, on the 26 book, I set myself a challenge, mm-hmm. which is I wanted to write about books that have been incredibly meaningful to me mm-hmm. 
but only ones where I thought I could articulate why they might be meaningful to someone else. Okay. That's so a... many of my favorite books I didn't include simply because I loved them, but I, I couldn't really tell anyone else why, why they might. I just love them. And that's okay, too. You don't have to explain every book in your life. Um, but these were 26 books that I really felt had a message for our time. Um, and all these different kinds of messages we've been talking about. Um, the message of, like, cooling it with the greed and ambition, slowing down. I have a whole book I talk about taking naps and how wonderful it is oh, to take naps. I have to admit, I, I have a, a science of nap taking. It's, it's 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Yeah, I can lay down. I just set my little alarm 20 minutes. Bang, I'm up again. I'm refreshed. I feel better. And I get twice as much work done as I would have ever. I spent... The previous 20 minutes trying to work, being tired, and then finally giving up. Exactly. I'm a huge nap fan. And what I always say about naps, it's two days for the price of one. <laughs> you get a sort of reset, recharge. But uh, so that's I wanted to talk about napping. Oh, it's a great topic. Um, but also these more serious things. And I wanted to include all different kinds of books. I um, include a poem by mm -hmm. the poet uh, Maria Howe um, from a gorgeous cycle of poems she wrote called What the Living Do. Um, and these children's books, as I said. And it was very hard to limit it. Uh, but at the end of the day, the, the books sort of announced themselves to me. And I only had some really tough choices to make with the last couple of chapters. That uh, Because I wanted 26. I wanted, if you wanted to follow this as a reading program, you can read a book every two weeks for a year. Well, that's uh, that sounds eminently doable. And what a wonderful... Uh, uh, plan. Uh, you know, talk about creating, this is also an autobiography, and there's a, and there's a character in here who appears in all of these passages who I'm speaking to right now. Yes. Uh, so talk about, did you, did your experience of writing this book and writing about the books that you love change your understanding of yourself? I think, well, first of all, I think every book I read changes my understanding <laughs> of myself. It's it's a constant uh, refinement. Uh, and what I love are those moments, and I hope I chronicled them accurately, when we go from stupidity or ignorance to some small glimmer of light. And And stories I love to tell are moments when I had something wrong um, and a book put me right. So, for example, I talk about Anne Morrow Lindbergh's The Gift from the Sea, um, which is uh, Gift from the Sea, Gifts from the Sea, a wonderful, wonderful book. And I'll, I'll explain about that in a minute. But I talk about a moment very early in my work career where a colleague, very distinguished older colleague, she said to me, where are you going on vacation? And I said to her, oh, I'm much too busy to take a vacation. And she paused and she really looked at me with a very icy glare. And then she said, you're either an idiot or you're a megalomaniac. She said, you're an idiot if you can take vacation and you don't. And you're a megalomaniac if you think we can't survive a couple weeks without you here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was my start of realizing that. But a book like Anne Morrow Lindbergh's, which talks about simplifying your life and, and decluttering your soul and, and coming back to priorities that are really true priorities, um, I realized how wrong I had it before reading that. And it's a process. I'm, I'm constantly having to learn, not just from that book, but from every book. But the stories I most like to tell are those when I learned something and was able to change my idiotic behavior in some uh, small or significant way. 
Well, you talk about the stories you would like to tell. This book is a series of stories, and it has a great story arc for us as readers. And I think that that's one of the true powers of this book is it's a stealth storytelling machine. And I think you do a great job of dropping in these moments that would be in an action thriller. It'd be like the exciting scene when the revelation's <laughs> made or in a mystery, it'd be when they tell, you know, who who done it. You have a lot of these scenes where you, where you yourself are the detective <laughs> or the audience for the detective. And I think that that... Those are great. Did you, when you went back and put the book together, did you orchestrate those? I tried really hard to. Thank you. I'm glad you said that. I tried really hard to, to weave those through. And and I, when I'm writing, I consider them Dr. Watson moments. They're page-turning points. I mean, they just become, oh, my God, I've got to get oh. another one of these. Well, and, and for me, what a Dr. Watson moment is as a writer mm-hmm. is... Um, I I always love Dr. Watson better than I like Sherlock Holmes. And as a writer, I want to be the guy who doesn't get something, asks enough questions, and then gets it. And so those moments that I tried to place at, at very strategic intervals throughout the book are the moments when um, I'm Dr. Watson and I'm making an inquiry of a book or the world, um, and it's it's setting me straight. Well, we as a species, our, our continued existence as a species, I think at this point— definitely depends on our ability to ask the right questions. Another point that you discuss in this book as well. Yeah. Well, one of the things I learned very early on, and I state in the book, is that books a lot of times don't answer your questions, but what they do is give you new questions to ask. And and really, I'm 54 years old, so as as to use a golf analogy my brother uses, I'm on the back nine, (laughs) nine holes behind me, um, nine to go, fewer than nine to go. Um, so, and one of the things I have learned is a great question will really serve you better through life than a great answer. I've been speaking with Will Schwalbe. His new book is Books for a Living. Thank you for joining me, Will. Thank you so much, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.